All right, guys. We've got some great entertainment lined up for you tonight. But first, let's go over the rules. Rule one. The human who watches this podcast must be aware that it contains language that may not be suitable for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Rule two. The human who watches this podcast must be aware that spoilers for a series may occur at any time. And lastly, rule number three. The human who watches this podcast must be aware that the views and opinions expressed by the gods of death participating in this episode do not reflect those of Dub Talk as a whole. <sighs> hey, Light. Can you tell me why I'm doing this again? I thought you said it would be interesting. <laughs> it's all just a part of my plan, Ryuk. Now these fools will have no choice but to watch this silly podcast. But... Uh, just finish it. You're not going to get any more apples for a week. Uh, fine. I swear I'm going to make that kid joke on his potato tits one of these days. Uh, well then. Shall we begin? Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Dub Talk, a show where a bunch of nerds get together and talk about a recent dub or dub announcement. Uh, today we're doing something a little bit different. Today this episode becomes Kira's Corner, because the show we're covering today is none other than Death Note. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I am so in love with Kira. I would absolutely do anything for him. He is my man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, allow me to introduce myself. I am Master Detective R, and joining me today are my agents known as N. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be talking about this show! You know, I have so much love for this, and I figured out all the secrets of the whole thing. I thank you so much, Detective R, for bringing me on the case! We have Detective S. Hello. And Detective J. R, do you know? I like apples. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, this is uh, this was dubbed uh, back in the late two thousands, I believe, right? Right. Doctor R, I'm sorry, Detective R. Am I correct in assuming that this is actually the first dub talk episode where we're talking about a Canadian dub? I believe so. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there was the one time I briefly. I briefly mentioned uh, Michael Dangerfield for uh, best comedy in last year's dubbies, but I guess that's basically it. So, all right, so um, what is this show even about? Like, I'm seeing the title Death Note, and I'm assuming it's like about a bunch of students who are cramming in their notebooks and die from the stress, right? Uh, I mean, you're not far from ANN. Light Yagami is an ace student with great prospects who's bored out of his mind. One day, he finds the Death Note, a notebook from the realm of the Death Gods with the power to kill people in any way he desires. With the Death Note in hand, Light decides to create the perfect world without crime or criminals. However, when criminals start dropping dead one by one, the authorities send the legendary detective L to track down the killer, and a battle of wits, deception, and logic ensues. 
And that logic, of course, being how many plot twists can you throw into a 37-episode series and still keep the audience's attention? The answer, how many a middle schooler can handle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is, like, one of those shows that's widely considered to be one of the... I guess part of the anime starter pack, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Late 2000s yeah, There you go. That's a, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. That second opening, people. Uh, that, yeah, that screamer uh, opening. Go look up the list. Thank God for fans. Japanese double entendres. Yes. Uh, the fans I read got it wrong. I can actually tell now. <laughs> I, I think that was on purpose. <laughs> As I, as I, uh, no, the fan subs had to swear words. The Viz's version did not. And Viz's version is actually accurate. Ah. <laughs> like, I, I want to say I saw somewhere it was like a double entendre that Maximum the Hormone used that could be I, I mean, I mean, I mean, it might be, but like my understanding of Japanese has improved enough that I can tell Viz's subtitles are probably accurate. Yeah. <laughs> but this is not sub talk. This is dub talk. Yeah. So, Right, and because this is a dub, we uh, you have to have director and scriptwriter, <clears throat> you know, sketching out those words and making them into words we understand. I'll take the script and write it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Insert musical cue. This is going to be uh, interesting because I don't think any of the people who we're going to talk about tonight have ever been talked about on the show before. Because, like you said, this is a, this is a Vancouver production, right? So, in terms of voice direction, we have a man by the name of Carl Williams, who you would know as uh, the director of the Canadian dub of Dragon Ball Z from, I think, like <laughs> season two. <laughs> And then, basically, all the stuff that Americans didn't get because Funimation took it over. Sorry, I'm just... The Canadian Dragon Ball Z dub. Oh. Uh, I really wish we got, like, all of it. Because I've heard great things about it once it gets to, like, Trunks and Boo and... I'll never tell. (laughs) But in any case... You hand over that footage right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> It'll follow me to the grave. But in any case, um, you would also be familiar with his direction with um, basically all of Inuyasha, including Final Act. Uh, the Girl Who Leapt Through Time. And a little show that's near and dear to my heart called uh, Monster Rancher. Is that a anime or an, Amer- or an yeah. a Western? Oh, it is? It's win. It, it's an anime, yeah. It's win. Yeah, it, it like, was one of our, like, childhood animes. Yeah. Uh, basically, it was like a PlayStation game where you took... Th- where you'd actually take the game disc out of the machine, you'd put it in a CD, and it would give you a monster. Like, it was really cool. Th- yeah, that sounds like a really good application of the technology for the time. Like, you couldn't do anything like that nowadays. Yeah. And, um, as for the scripts of Death Note... Uh, this is a little bit of an interesting case, because basically, with the uh, with the split of the opening and ending credits, there are two writers that basically handled those those two little bits. Uh, from episode one to nineteen, you had a man by the name of Stephen Headley, who you would know as the writer from Black Lagoon, 
a show that aired on like Crackle a couple years back called Kurazuka. And he was also the scriptwriter for the original Canadian dub of Mobile Suit Gundam Sea. Because I guess that's now getting like an NV. Blah, blah, blah. An NYAV post redub at some point. That's yeah. odd because we don't we don't get a whole lot of NYAV stuff nowadays. Like they're actually they're kind of split between New York and LA now, aren't they? Yeah, uh, NYAV much. is basically just movies and Gundam and Pokemon too, right? No, not no, Pokemon. that's somebody else. No. Oh. But episode twenty through thirty nine. Uh, I'm sorry, not thirty nine. Uh, thirty seven. Uh, were penned by a woman by the name of Michelle Clow. I, I I hope I got your name right. I am so sorry if I Clow. Clow. Okay. She did scripts for Myotome. Jet, you're gonna have to help me out on this one. But that Precure dub that was basically like, wasn't it like four kids in Nelvana kind of teaming up on it? Uh, wait, the Canadian Precure dub. Yes. Okay. Oh, no, that was just actually called Pretty Cure. That one was actually done by Toei. Okay. And, um, story, story of Sayankoku. Ooh. Really stretching our knowledge of obscure shows here. Story yeah. of Saikoku. Oh. That's a good one. That's a oh, good we one. Got some, we got some interesting references that are going to be coming up. Oh, boy. But, um... Jet, let's start off with you. How did you feel about the direction and script writing? Okay, uh, so before I get into that, I should mention that um, normally I type out my notes when uh, when helping to record an episode. Uh, but because I was pretty busy this week, I ended up writing down all of my notes in a black and white notebook. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> Worst part is, I actually have voice actor names scribbled down here, too. <laughs> So I would now We're so sorry. Yeah, That's so, awful. I'm now, <laughs> so I'm now referring to this as my dumb note. The human whose name is written in this notebook shall be judged for their acting skills. <laughs> oh boy. Alright, okay. That's actually funny. That's really funny. Okay, um I, I'm so, just getting like I'm sorry, I'm just getting like this visual image of like Jet. You know, huddled in front of his computer with only one lamp and, like, fiercely jotting down the notes with an apple-eating Shinigami in the background. Oh, man, I actually do only have one lamp on right now. <laughs> <laughs> I've already okay. got what I want. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, so I'm being serious for a second. I don't have too much to say about the dub on the writing front. It's basically a one-to-one -one translation of the manga. Which can make it feel a little bit stiff at times, but it works for the most part since this was a really popular series and any excessive changes probably wouldn't have gone over that well. Mm -hmm. uh, Direction-wise, I've always considered Defto to be one of Ocean's best dubs, and while I was a little bit worried it might not hold up well, it actually says it's such a time. I will say that the first couple of episodes or so sound a little bit awkward because some of the actors are like clearly getting eased into their roles a bit. Uh, but once they adjust, it's pretty much a great ride from start to finish. And a lot of the performances were made just as memorable as they did when I first watched the anime way back when. So, uh, yeah, that was a really nice experience. Nice. Oh, lovely. So, Sneeps. Mm-hmm. Why don't you inform us of your opinion? I found the adaptation was, as was said, fairly 
workmanlike. No real fancy Dan adaptations to uh, local peculiarities. This script could practically have been written in America. The only thing that I found telling or different about this adaptation, I think, was the sheer leveraging of the passion. I'm... Say what you like about this show. The people who are giving the dub performances actually, I think on average, give a better bang for the buck than some of the dub performers. I... We'll get to that when we get to that, and I'll be dropping specific names, but this is the sort of thing that just works better in dub, in my opinion. Okay, so Noah, what do you think? Well, I'm not surprised that uh, both Jet and Sneeves had uh, pretty good opinions of the dub, because uh, this is a really dialogue-heavy series that, um, I'll agree, also had, took a little bit of time to nail down, it sounded like, in the dub, because not only is it... It's a serious series, but... It's also a really hard tone to pull off because mixed in with the serious tale about whether or not it's okay to kill criminals and the mind games of hiding from the police, you've also got some silly melodramatic elements as well. Like the indicator should of course be you've got a main character whose name is Light. Who on earth, not on peyotes, is going to name their kid just Light? That is... That should already give you an idea about the level of silliness that you're going to get in the show. So as for the... Naito. I mean, would you, Sneeves? Are you going to name your kid Light? I mean, it's funny. You reminded me that, like, when I used to read some of the manga scans way back when, mm -hmm. there were some of them who actually just had his name as Raito, which is how Light's name is supposed to be written in Japanese, but... <laughs> it was an odd translation choice, but given the pomposity of the show... I won't call it Always out. Always support your official translations, kids. <laughs> yeah, so that's... Uh, I'm thinking back to that one sketch about the difference between official uh, translations and uh, fan translations, where it's like, you are my friend, and then you are my Nakama translation. Nakama means friend, but it's such a powerful <laughs> word that we have decided to keep it untranslated. Uh, I remember that. <laughs> okay, but... Uh... But as for the actual direction on this one, uh, yeah, I do think this is one of the better things that uh, the Ocean Group has done. Uh, certainly some of the best material that they've been given to work with. Um, like, Carl has really good, uh, a good handle on his different actors. He gives all, he casted and directed all of them to sound slightly different from each other so that if you were to just listen to it without any visuals, like I did for a good chunk of this, you could pretty much easily uh, figure out who is who. So the actors are distinct. And then as far as the script writing goes, I didn't really notice a difference when it jumped between Steven or Michelle's writing. It's all very consistent. And it's all very easy to listen to. Like they use just the right level of poetry in the writing to make words more eloquent for the characters they need to. Or when you get to some characters that aren't quite as intelligent, you get like more vernacular speaking patterns. Um, really, aside from the uh, some of the Japanese in the background, you could easily mistake this for a, an English production, like, you know, an, a Canadian or an American animated series that was specifically made for Adult Swim. Yeah. 
Although I, I do question the one thing, um, not about the dub, but just uh, one line that uh, Ryuk says. He says, he wrote the rules for the Death Note in English, which is, and he says, the most popular language in the world. I don't know if that's correct, because the last time I looked it up, only 20% of the world's population speaks English. Uh, last time I checked, I think Mandarin Chinese was the most popular language. Okay, yeah. uh, okay, I think that was the case in, like, 2004, which is when this was written, but... So we must... Yeah, I mean, there's... Like, there's a little bit of interpretation to, to fudge here and there. Right, right. That, that that didn't bug me too much. It was just one of those things where, like, I, yeah. I gotta point out. this out. Like, the English speakers are gonna be like, <laughs> yeah, we're the most popular language. So, yeah, so, I, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna give, I give this a full two thumbs up for the adaptation. Um, uh, really, it's all just going to come down to the ver uh, the various actors that we'll talk about later. All right. So typically, when I judge an anime dub, I I go with um, how much banter is in the show and how snappy the dialogue comes off as. Unfortunately, with a show like this, there's like very little in the way of banter to go off of. Just you know, random little conversations going on in the background. That said, when the dialogue needs to be snappy, it it has a bit of a punch to it. Well, I mean, it would have to be because, really, the show doesn't have a whole lot of animation to it. Like, I know it. Yeah. It looks pretty good in most parts, but it, it doesn't move a whole lot. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Despite what everyone may tell you, Madhouse didn't really have the resources to properly get Takashi Obata's art down. So. I mean, <laughs> no studio really does, let's be honest. Not to mention... <laughs> I still remember about well, that. Maybe in nowadays, like, you might see something like that out of, um, I don't know, who's really experimental, like, maybe out of a modern-day Shaft or something like that, but, yeah, I don't, I can't really picture that coming from any studio in 2004. Yeah. Um, I do have to give a lot of praise for how, um, the direction is scriptwriting kind of handled little dialogue clues that led to uh, really big hammy moments of payoff like when um, when light is basically killing criminals around L by using a bag of potato chips uh. <laughs> the, the like, infamous uh, moment of the show yes <laughs> like the there are little moments like that scattered like around the usually around the end of major story arcs and it's really really nice and uh that said a bit of a flaw with the show is um sometimes the comedic timing falls a little flat but honestly i think that's more to do with the show's subject matter itself than the actual script writing and direction no i mean they they definitely had a, a like i don't know if any of you guys have listened to any of the japanese of the original but they definitely made the comedic parts goofier in the Japanese and in the English. They probably didn't want to risk compromising the serious tone that they were they were going for, and so they they played more of the the funnier moments straight. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. The show's humor—it's kind of Batman-like in that it's mostly just dark humor. But it's yeah. interesting you mentioned Batman because I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up Batman in the animated series much later in the episode. So oh while you're uh, oh there, oh, oh I I know I know exactly where you're going to do that, and I plan to do it too. Oh, <laughs> dang it. Oh, boy. Uh, okay, stick around for that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so are we ready to move on? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah full, hmm. full props to the Canadian writers and directors. They should do more work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, let, let's send more up. 
Let's send more dubs up north. Maybe we could finally Revive Ocean Group 2018. <laughs> I mean, I mean, with all the work that uh, the current simul dub people are doing, it might behoove them to, you know, stretch out the, the resources a little bit and hire other people to do some dubs too. All right, so we're gonna start with uh, the agents of the Japanese police. Uh, they are the first people to really start investigating Kira and and his. You can argue whether or not they're wrongdoings, but they're pretty much wrongdoings. I mean, what? Why? I ask you, why would <laughs> law enforcers want to hunt down someone who's already killed like a couple dozen, hundreds of people in a matter of a few days? No, that because there's you know a justice system. That's that's what the justice system is there no, for. No, it, it, it's funny you bring that up because like the one interesting thing that the uh, live action American movie did that I thought was kind of neat was okay was when they brought up the cops the cops were actually on Kira's side which I thought was like yeah that, that, that's very much what American cops would do <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah. nothing against Seattle nothing against Seattle but uh, yeah death note I'm sorry I don't see how light wins anyone's sympathy at this point in the game well, well uh... we, yeah, it's again we can go in a long diatribe about that on the light portion of it but yeah. If you are if you are in that persuasion, stick around. We are going to probably banter a little bit about that amongst ourselves. Yep. All right. All right. So starting off, um, we have Suichiro Yagami, White's father, uh, basically chief of police, and then he becomes one of the two heads of the uh, Anti-Kira Task Force. And he's got a bitchin' mustache. Oh yeah, he does. Mustache. You have Tota Matsuda, kind of a kind of a lighthearted, jokey kind of guy. He's our, he's our resident butt monkey. <laughs> yes, he he's the youngest of the of the group in the Kira group, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. If I recall correctly, yes. Yeah, he, he's basically you deserve better. A little a uh, little wet behind the ears. And then last we have uh, Shuichi Aizawa, sort of the grumpy member of the group. He ends up quitting halfway through the show and then coming back. <laughs> Like, he gets a really good character arc, and it, it actually kind of made me cry when he uh, walked away from the task force. Yeah, um, and in case you don't remember, he's the one with the afro. Oh, yeah. But then he had to shave it off, and then I got sad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that was his defining character trait was the afro. But then he got then he got the scraggly beard, and then it was kind of okay. So, uh, so did they get uh, any English actors for these characters? Actually, they did. Who? Uh, so pl- Amir, Christmas. <laughs> okay, so this is actually going to be kind of an interesting episode because um, a lot of the actors, except for, like, the top building, really aren't involved in much anime. They weren't then, and they really aren't now. So a lot of the, a lot of the roles I'm probably going to end up naming off are, like, cartoons from, like late 80s early 90s like you're gonna get nostalgic when i start talking about some of these brace uh, yourselves <laughs> uh but in any case uh suichiro yagami is voiced by chris Breton, who you would probably have heard as um iron man and several like several of the kind of 2000 ish uh marvel video games like at least one of the marvel versus capcoms and probably more 
Uh, he was Mr. Sinister in the original X-Men cartoon. And he also had a cameo in Netflix's Death Note film. Really? Oh, cool. I did not know and, that. And uh, uh, Tota Matsuda is played by Vincent Tong. Uh, you would have probably heard him as uh, Kai from the Cartoon Network uh, Lego Ninjago cartoon. Uh, he was uh, Soko Okita in Gintama. And Soya Kizama in World Trigger. And Shuichi Aizawa is played by Trevor Duvall, who you would know as uh, Revis Norfloret in Final Fantasy XV. He's Mr. Chang in Black Lagoon. And uh, Isogai in Sword of the Stranger. Alright, so Jet, what did you think of the Antikira Task Force? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so Sarichiro is kind of supposed to be seen as the one ambiguous good guy of the entire story. And uh, Chris does a really great job of making him sound like the sort of weathered and seasoned cop you would expect a police chief to be. And he does all that without sounding too overbearing. And I really did like Soichiro, it just kind of made it all the worse when Light stabs him in the back. Uh, Matsuda, of course, as I said before, is supposed to be the butt monkey of the gang. And Vincent Tong plays it up really well. Of course, my favorite moment from him was in the finale where he realizes what kind of person Light really is and flips out. You could really feel the mix of disappointment and rage in Vincent's performance. And really gave that whole scene a lot of extra punch. I mean, he's such a sweet, innocent person. You, you don't want to see his heart broken like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my only real complaint in that regard is more to the anime, anime adapted itself. Uh, since the change in the ending means that Masada's theory on how near one doesn't get brought up at all, and I kind of like that whole bit because it kind of, it kind of, you know, gives the impression that Masada isn't a total space case, and it also kind of. Uh, shows a little bit more of how much light meant to him since he couldn't completely bring himself to hate him. Okay, um, so for a long time, Matsuda was actually my favorite of these characters, uh, but rewatching the anime for this episode, I actually found myself leaning more towards Aizawa. Uh, he's kind of in the middle of these two in that he, he respects light and doesn't really want to believe he's Kira, but he also never puts him below suspicion. And uh, being caught in the middle like that sort of helped to make him feel a little bit more human in a way that, frankly, no one else in the cast really does. And uh, that whole bit where he has to choose between continuing the case and being with his family was honestly one of the few moments in the series that actually felt pretty emotional. And uh, Turbin Evolve nailed all of that really well. He was able to carry the character throughout the series. And uh, he gave me a newfound appreciation for him, so I have nothing else to say but well done. Mm. Nice. Steve's? I found that Chris Britton's Soichiro Yagami was bland. I I wasn't crazy about the character. Yeah, manly dad with mustache. Hurrah. But he really didn't do all that much but be the emotionally distant father figure who overworks himself while his wife and kids kind of get by as best they can. He didn't really have much of a uh, a presence to him and while yes it was very heartrending when he was sadly dying uh, and Chris did get, did warm into the character over time ultimately it didn't really make much of a lasting impression on me now, Would you put that down to the the actual dub performance by Chris or was that just a problem of how he was written in the show? While I do think it is a problem with how the character was written in the show I would have liked to have seen Chris give a little bit more 
a timber of warmth here, a taste of a little bit more resignation of I've been at this job for all my life sort of affair. Yeah. And I found it it could have come through a little more, but I didn't really see that until it was really nearing the end of that character's arc. And yeah, that was something that did stand out for me. Now, the performance we got out of Matsuda was interesting. He did play the uh, likable, soft... He was he felt more like a shonen protagonist in many ways. He sounded... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, the actor's name, I had it down here. Uh, it's uh, a Tog. Tog, thank you. He sounded more like he would have been better as a shonen protagonist in this. You know, soft-spoken, kind-hearted. He particularly is doing some of the more comedic things when he see starts perving on lights. Well, perving. He's supposed to be the nice boy, and oh, you're so pretty, uh, Miss Yagami. I didn't expect you to see you so lovely now. It was supposed to come off a sweet and innocent and problem with the writing of the show, but uh, he felt... He felt like the sweet, innocent guy that we were supposed to find likable to contrast with the rest of the hardened sociopaths who were our main focus. But as was mentioned, that uptick of uh, increased frenzied desperation as he finds himself in more and more dangerous situations really came to a head with that last devastating scene when he just cuts loose on Light Aunt for every bad thing that he'd done. And uh, it was a it was a good slow build, slow burn performance that I found landed on me. And I'm afraid for our Afroed friend, he just completely slipped by my radar. He was a fun character, but I barely remembered him on my rewatch. That was my problem. <laughs> There's so many damn characters in this thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, I yeah, it was hard to about. break it down. I mean, yeah, we're going to talk about a good chunk of them, but yeah, I agree. In terms of just, like, how do you gauge the range of characters into whether or not it was a good or bad dub? It's like, there's hundreds of them. Hundreds, I say. And they did a good performance. There was, I couldn't really place a truly bad actor in this, but there's just a reactive range from the, you know, over-the-top or the incredibly pointed to the fade into the background conveniently as the plot rolls past them. Hmm. Uh, Noah? Well, um, I have a few problems with the show that yeah. I can slightly hint upon here, but I'm not going to let that distract from my observations about the dub actors themselves, because one of the big problems I have with the main show is that I don't really like the fact that L become or that light, sorry, that light becomes part of the Kira task force, and that that makes up about two thirds of the show. It kind of breaks my suspension of disbelief that he would that the guy who's actually who they're hunting would be part of the group trying to hunt them for so long, and that makes up a two thirds of the show's run. So yeah. Now, now that being said, though, the investigators themselves, I have no problems with. Um. So Ichiro, I think, was um, probably not given a whole lot of thought in the writing stage of it because he had to be the kind of person who was unabashedly Japanese. Like, there, there's a whole sense of you do your diligent duty, 
you serve the community, and you also protect your family at the same time. And that does come through in Chris's performance. He has this almost European accent to him. Like, compared to everyone else who's got more of an American accent, I felt that he almost had this, like, old world, you know, uh, voice to him. Um, I don't know where he's actually from in the world, but that's the, you know, the voice that he gave off. And it gave him uh, an older, world-weary uh, atmosphere to him that um, didn't really get all the opportunities to be emotional, like you said, Steve's. But mm -hmm. I do think it definitely paid off uh, in the, the scenes where uh, his daughter is kidnapped and he actually, he actually has to put himself on the line. Like, I buy that. Like, I buy that this guy who mm -hmm. we haven't known uh, too much about his personality up to this point would be that much of a you know father of the year character so um yeah chris has got a pretty good uh pretty good performance on this one i, I can't really think of a way that i would have improved it in any way nor can i really think of a way that i would have improved uh vincent's performance as matsuda because uh this is a more younger voice uh, uh he's like even a higher pitched voice than light is our main character um, I'm actually going to disagree about the idea that he would be a shonen protagonist. I think he's actually more like someone who would be a harem protagonist. He's like the kind of a dorky <laughs> trousers character who just stumbles into her boobs, and uh, now all of a sudden he's got four four beautiful women who he's you know the the, the Adonis of the school of. Um, Not all shonen shows are action shows. Love Hina was a shonen too. And this, so poo -poo you. this was also in Shonen Jump. The original manga was in Shonen, which I, I have a hard time believing because it, it's so different from the battle manga that I'm used to from Shonen Jump. But you're right, you're right. Not all Shonen. <laughs> shonen just means for young boys. It doesn't necessarily mean they're all action series. Um, but in keeping with that mentality, Vincent did a good job on this. Um, it, it would have been very easy to make uh, Matsuda uh, much more cartoonish and give him the sense of um, that he's got to be so much of a butt monkey that um, he's like uh, uh, we're unable to take him seriously but he's the most relatable I think of all the characters mm -hmm. and I'm talking about yeah. all the characters not just this group here but like all the characters I relate to Matsuda the most like he's got a crush on a model he's gets flustered when things get over the top but he's got like such a good golden heart to him too that you just can't help but root for him he's like he's like a proto deku from my hero academia which now that i think about it is a shonen protagonist so maybe i should retract my statement from before so, <laughs> you lose <laughs> good day sir so yeah i have nothing nothing wrong to say about vincent either this was this is a good casting choice and he, he contrasts chris very well because the two of them do have quite a few scenes together and you can tell the old cop versus the new cop mentality Unfortunately, I don't have very much to say about Trevor's performance as Aizawa. Not because I didn't like him or anything, but because I just didn't gravitate towards his character at all. Like, I re actually really didn't gravitate towards uh, any of the investigators aside from Matsuda and Yagami. And that's just, uh, that's just a crime of them not really having scenes that really, like, grab me, you know? Like, there there's so much going on in the show, your brain's just going to not register all of it. But I don't have anything bad to say about Trevor either. So I guess you could take that as a good thing that he did his job well enough that I can't say anything bad about it. Okay. Um, so I have to say that uh, Chris Patton does a really great job in playing sort of the the distant fatherly figure and did the uh, the duty bound aspect of his personality really well. He did not deserve what the show gave him though. 
Like, I, I would have loved to have seen him make it to the end. But then again, you know, finding out your son is the guy you're supposed to be arresting. Like, that would have been heartbreaking, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, funny, there are versions where he does find out and knows he's really more interesting. Uh, so, I, I really do like, uh, the performance for, uh, Matsuda. As, as Jet was kind of alluding to, he's, he's a bit of the butt monkey of the show. Which means he has a lot of situations that he just needs to react to in a really funny way. And I, I really kind of bought into that. And also, like Jet said, the, uh, the last episode of the show where he has to kind of drop the silly act and actually be angry at somebody like he becomes the hero that, that was... we need <laughs> right but uh, not the hero we deserve like that actually kind of got to me a little bit i actually do really like uh aizawa and trevor duvall's performance because um like, especially toward like the third act of the series where he's sort of the like, he's sort of helping Nier in his investigation of Kira by secretly giving him information that he just kind of figures out himself. Like, that was... That was really cool to hear, like, the inner conflict of the whole thing. Yeah, we get a, we get a whole lot of inner monologuing from a lot of characters. <laughs> right. Which is fun, which is great for the animators, because then they don't have to animate lip flaps. <laughs> well, there you go. But, um, so we need to move on from the, uh, Anti-Kira Task Force. And, uh, you know, we're gonna end up going towards the, uh, the allies of Kira. Time to talk about the minions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, we have, uh, first of all, we have Kiyosuke Higuchi. He is what is generally considered to be the third Kira. Um, around the middle of the show... Light relinquishes ownership of the Death Note to give up his memories. And it ends up in the hands of this guy who's sort of a businessman, a real kind of shark guy. And he basically starts killing off uh, business rivals in addition to criminals so that, you know, Light can find him and arrest him to sort of clear his name. And we also have uh, Teru Mikami a criminal prosecutor who ends up becoming the fourth person to take on the title of Kira and um, holds on to that title pretty much until the end of the series when he ends up screwing everything up. Uh, and last but not least, we have uh, Kiyomi Takeda, who is basically the... After a show revolving around Kira and his, uh, his exploits, ends up losing its host because the new Kira doesn't happen to like him very much. Uh, she is selected as the official mouthpiece of Kira. Uh, she is, for the most part, a supporter and ends up being manipulated by Light up until her death. People die in death note. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I love... You reminded me of this, like, Light's opening line in the show is death note, as in a notebook of death? <laughs> this guy rank up there with people die when they are killed. Uh, Alright, so um, Kiyosuke Higuchi is played by um, Andrew Kawadas. I'm like, again, I'm terribly sorry if I end up butchering your name here. 
I'm probably going to end up doing that a lot. Uh, you would know him as uh, Shui Chen from the movie Sword of the Stranger. Uh, he is Patrick Zala in the Ocean dub of Mobile Suit Gundam Seed. But uh, old, school, old school cartoon fans may know him from a little something else. Uh, he's Simon Belmont in Captain N. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, I'm not going to do anything, rest. but my whip is going to whoop you. <laughs> uh, so Teru Mikami is played by Kirby Morrow, who you would know as uh, Miroku in Inuyasha. He's Ito in Hikaru no Go. And he's also Cole in the Lego Ninjago cartoon. And Kiyomi Takeda is played by uh, Heather Dorikison. You would know her as uh, Miss Sakagami in Nana. Uh, she's Amber Bailey in the Dead Rising video games. And she also plays Princess Leia in a couple of Lego Star Wars properties. I think it's like the cartoons that uh, that air on like Disney XD. I don't think it's like the actual video games, but in any case. Um... So Jet, what did you think of the performances of the uh, Kira supporters? Okay, so outside of Higuchi first, so I don't have a whole ton to say here. Uh, he's just kind of there to be an unwitting pawn and to be kind of as big of a slime ball as possible. And uh, Andrew Gavadis is really great at making him sound as punchable as possible. And uh, <laughs> watching him get his two episode comeuppance where he slowly realizes he's screwed was pretty satisfying to watch. Uh, Mikami is also kind of there to be an ir irredeemable psycho. And while I kind of appreciated his backstory, he's uh, just kind of there to explain how crazy he is and not an excuse for why he's crazy. Uh, I also feel like Mikami kind of shows how much my feelings about Death Note have changed since I was a kid. Uh, because Kid Me always thought that Light would have won if he hadn't screwed up everything in the end. While adult me kind of realized how much Mikami kind of represents life's inability to comprehend that people aren't, you know, just driven purely by logic. It's like they act emotionally and he's failure to understand that is part of why he gets screwed in the end. I mean, I have no idea how much of that is intentional, but I thought that was kind of nice. Yeah, looking back mm -hmm. at it now. Um, so anyway, Kirby Morrow brings some of his finest quality hand to this performance. As he's really great at switching between Mikami's reserved and business-like persona and a crazed, devoted maniac underneath the surface. Also, the way he says delete without flinching is just so perfectly delivered that it literally became a meme. So I can't think of any <laughs> higher praise delete, than that. Delete! 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 <laughs> okay, uh, as for Takada... Well, it's time to talk about one of Death Note's biggest problems. Uh, you see, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, you see, Death Note is very well. It, it's very sexist, and, and I don't mean sexist like the way female characters usually play second fiddle in shonen stories, but I mean it is like really it is... sexist. Like to the, the point where Don Draper sexist. Yeah, yeah, okay. Basically, you can tell that Tsukumi about. That Tsugumi Uba just has like a really transparent dislike of women. Uh, or at the very, the, at the most generous, a very narrow uh, <laughs> belief about what women are capable of. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's not even a problem exclusive to Death Note either because it's all over the place in Bakuman too. Yeah. Okay, uh, hmm. okay, uh, so anyway, Tonkin is one of the worst victims in this case. Uh, we'll get to the actual worst a little bit later. Uh, and while she was initially just introduced as a background character, 
And when she's brought back to the timescape, it's purely just to be used as another one of White's pawns. And to be literally disposed of, and uh, she doesn't really have too many significant traits beyond that. Yep, so basically, Oba is super sexist, and I'll give Heather credit for doing what she could with the character. Uh, but I don't really like Takada, and her role in the story is just kind of... It just kind of plays all of Oba's worst tendencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this show really... This show, when I was making the joke to middle school reference, really feels like it was written by an angry teenage boy who didn't understand people or life and especially those pretty but frivolous girl creatures that are always trittering about yeah um, I have strong opinions about this show Um, with Takata I I liked the performances that we got even in the second half there was the character should have been fascinating in all of the right ways, where she is both a fervent supporter of uh, this vigilante death cultist. She should be, uh, you know, an analyst who has these strong opinions about what is and isn't the justice of the new world, but also had a broad emotional range of affection and flirtation with light. And while the actual motivation behind that was, again, Obata failing to understand that women are human beings the actual life that was given to that performance I thought was solid terrible material to work with but uh, good on Heather Dorkin her conclusion that final scene there her begging for her life as she is compelled to commit suicide is absolutely rending to hear and I really didn't like this character I had I admit I've marathoned too much of the show and too much Death Note is bad for your brain's ability to process. Yes. But yes. do not be one of the, the edgelords who touts it as the greatest philosophical creation of all time. And more to <laughs> and that. And don't binge. Sip. Yeah, this is something you can only take so much of a diet of because there's so many twists and turns it's just exhausting to keep up with. I mean, it's also but, so kind of a... It's, there's no light to it, ironically. There's no, no light. There's no levity. There, there's no there is levity. no levity to this. Or it, thank you. very little. Yes. Very little levity. But even when I was a little burned out while trying to cram in the last five episodes I had of this, uh, yeah, her last moments were absolutely incredible. That would have been a career maker for sure, the dubbing scene. As for Teru Mikami, uh, Kirby Morrow did a fine job with that. He was neat and meticulous and uh, gave that slight uh, restrained, refined, obsessive uh, nature of that sort of, that kind of professional. And through the very brittleness of the performance and the types of lines he had to give, really sold the idea that this person is like what one of Light's followers would be, both in real life and sort of this person who has no ability beyond a very narrow view of the world. This is right, this is wrong, I understand this. And the meticulous checking with uh, every little little bit of business dialogue, I will put this in a neat place, delete, delete was so <laughs> polished and you could you could hear uh, Kirby Morrow trying to contain that meticulous mad energy until the uh, 
absolute it was way easier to take than that monotony of the Japanese. And when you get to the final the, the final two acts, oh my gosh, that was that tightly wound up menace just exploded almost orgasmically. Delete, delete, delete. <laughs> it was it was ridiculous and exactly the type of hyperbole that this show needs. That 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 was almost the comedy for me. The ridiculous over the top nature of some of these absurd characters just practically orgasming at the thought of I am killing your god yes god is there kill delete 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 it's it was deathgasm that's what it is yeah it was it was a performance that must have been a hell of a lot of fun to give and uh it certainly was entertaining I uh commend both these uh, actors for doing a good job and yeah I will crap all over this show for being misanthropic garbage but it's misanthropic garbage that has a hell of a lot of fun with itself <laughs> okay um, Noah? yeah um, is, it, is it wrong of me I'm asking you as a group here is it wrong of me to not really care about any of the characters in this trio here um, the, I'd say that's pretty reasonable, actually. Because morally, I yes. Mean, okay, narrative-wise, this, no. this is not fair to the actors themselves. Because, um, and I'm going to give full credit to this. Um, if you bought the the home video release of the series, or you can probably find the clips on YouTube somewhere, there are lots and lots of behind-the-scenes interviews with the English voice actors where they kind of delve into their thought processes and their own interpretations of the characters and what motivated them to act the way they did. And uh, if it wasn't for some of that information from them, I probably would not care a whole lot about the performances that Heather, Kirby, and Andrew put into this, solely because I don't really care about the characters, because they're clearly just pawns. Like, I don't like yeah. the transparency of which they are simply uh, not only pawns for light, but also pawns of the writers to pad the show out. I don't think yeah. this really needed to be a 37-episode series. There was enough content to boil it down to a complete 24-episode series. I don't know why they felt the need to stretch it out that much. However, putting aside that, that, that thought of it, just focusing on the dub performances, these are all solid and varied performances. Um, Kirby's um, Teru is more of a Midwest accent. I, I felt like this mm. uh, Midwest craziness in his... Uh, you know, his performance of the, the Kira that's going to be, um, well, you know, kind of loses it big time in the end. And it's satisfying to listen to. He, he gives a very satisfying performance throughout. Um, same thing also with Andrew. Um, uh, Higuchi is more rugged and blue-collar. Like, I feel like he's the kind of person who would be, um, who would be, uh, I, I, like, who would grow up in a red state in America almost. Like, you know, a very... A rugged, hard-working, Bible-belt kind of individual, and that's uh, what Andrew gave to the character. He's got like this. He's definitely driven to impress people. Um, I think in one of the interviews, Andrew said that he was um, almost um, what is it? Um, yeah, he said that he was uh, potentially uh, fired from his company, and therefore he was like his entire motivation is to just be uh, impressive to other people. And that's relatable. That's a relatable quality to have. Like, we all have, like, our shortcomings. We haven't reached the heights that we want to get to. So having a character in this show where you have the power to kill anybody you want and take advantage of that, that's relatable. It's just not relevant to the core, con to the core conflict that 
really made the show interesting to begin with. Speaking of interesting, uh, Heather's uh, Takeda is really a sympathetic character because I get the feeling that she would have had a perfectly fine and very successful life if not for her entanglement in Light's uh, activities. Uh, because Heather gives her this like mature and uh, very uh, silky smooth voice to it that is like the kind of voice of someone who is driven in a career sense. Like I could see her going places in the world. And it definitely feels like she was he was she was written not only in the original uh, source material but also in her English voice to be a total contrast to another character that we're going to talk about coming up. In fact, these two characters clash heads pretty heavily throughout their time on screen together. So as much as mm -hmm. I but as much as I don't really uh, care about their usage in the show or the fact that they were just written to be used in the show. Um, I have no qualms with the acting on this one. Um, the actors definitely poured a lot of heart into it, and if you listen to some of the interviews they gave, they thought long and hard about how they were going to voice these characters. Like, they they definitely uh, cared about these characters really heavily, and I gotta commend that. Um, so I really like that Higuchi, you could hear the grease in his voice. <laughs> like, it was... It, it was a spectacular kind of hammy, greasy performance. And um, I, I also really like the kind of catty conflicts um, Kiyomi has with uh, with Misa, who we'll talk about here in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, that that's a lot of voice actor interaction, and it, like, it, that kind of thing is like can ear candy. Because mm -hmm. if, if you do it wrong... You can tell, because, like, dub actors have to do everything separately, so there's sometimes not a very good way to gauge how you're supposed to react to what somebody says if they haven't even come in to do their lines yet. Arguments and conflicts are really, really cool for me to hear when they're in an English dub. Yeah. But, oh my god, Kirby Morrow as Mikami. Yes. Oh, yes. Like, I I hope that there wasn't a deposit on those sets, because Kirby Morrow just shoot him down. <laughs> <laughs> From the narration of his backstory to, like, the, the penultimate episode where he's just rambling the word delete over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again like a madman. And the whole thing... It, and the whole thing in the last episode where he's just like, Yeah, I killed her. She was no longer of use to you, God. Like, just his his total snap. Ugh, so good. It's so chilling. It was definitely wise of them to, get, to go all out near the end there, because after episodes and episodes of just waiting, we, we needed that catharsis. Yeah. Ooh. But, um, like, I, I, even though at least two of the three didn't really get a lot of screen time to themselves. Oh, also, Kiyomi's, uh, like, begging for her life until, um, mm. until Light writes her, writes her cause of death and she ends up self-immolating in order yeah. to, uh, kill Mello. Like, that's, uh, That was... Like, that was tough to watch. Stuff too, yeah. That was tough to watch. Yeah, that's... So, 
Yeah, it amazes me that people still liked White after that, but somehow he still had fans. Yeah. <laughs> it amazes but, me um, people still like Light after a lot of things. Hashtag Light did nothing wrong. Light did everything wrong. Hashtag. Yeah, all three of Kira's minions like hammier candy, bar none. Uh, so are we ready to move on? Yes, please. Yes. Because we have a, I have lots of notes on this one. I, I have a whole book here written for these characters coming up. <laughs> In the third act, after L dies, uh, spoiler, he has. Uh, but in any case, after L dies, um, there's a little bit of a conflict as to who would end up succeeding him for the title of L. And it ends up coming down to two individuals. Uh, you have Mello, who's sort of the... He sort of takes on L's kind of sweets-loving personality, but he does whatever it takes to get to get the case solved, even if that means, you know, making deals with the Mafia. And then you have Nier, who's sort of childlike. He loves games. He has the mind of L. Yep. No. Oh, and if you're oh, and if you're thinking to yourself that the cold one should be named Mellow, and the, the cold one to be named Mellow, and the angry one to be named Nier, that actually was what was originally supposed to happen. But apparently, an editor somehow screwed up their names, so they what? ended up getting reversed. <laughs> oh wow! I did not know that. Yeah, I love that when that happens. I, I love when mistakes end up being, you know, it's like, man, yeah, just run with it. Uh, but in any case, um, Mello is played by a man by the name of David Hurwitz. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of what he does is um, is smaller roles in live action television, which is really not what we're here to do. But he did play. Um, Sojiro Takase in The Girl Left Her Time. And Nier is played by uh, Kathy Wisseluck. Uh You would know her from roles such as uh, Yuma Kuka in World Trigger. Garcia Lovelace in Black Lagoon, one of my favorite performances of hers. <laughs> uh, she was both Chiaotzu and Poir in the Ocean dub of Dragon Ball Z. But, uh, you might know her from a little something else. Kind of an obscure show on uh, kids' TV. Um, <laughs> like, she she plays a little dragon by the name of Spike in My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. And already I can hear Spaceman Hardy, like, cries of, No! You betrayed me, Ruth! No! Why would you do this? My little pony, Ryuk's a brony. <laughs> the Applejack merch. <laughs> is that show still on the air? Yes, I, yes it is. And they just had yes, a movie come out is. recently. And I didn't notice a single bit of this. There's more to life than cartoons. You, hey, 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 you cut your tongue right now. It's just... <laughs> Well, maybe in yeah, your life. There, but... there is more to life than cartoons. It's just boring stuff. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, speaking of boring <laughs> stuff, should we uh, talk about these two characters? Yeah. Mourn! Jet, no Nier and Mello. What'd you think? Okay, alright. So I know that everyone pretty much hates these two, but I'm actually kind of fond of them. Uh, part of the reason is that I've actually read the manga a lot more times than I've watched the anime. 
And uh, the enemy trims out a lot of stuff for the timescape, and I mean a yeah. lot. Okay, uh, to put some things into perspective here, uh, the stuff with L lasts until about midway through Volume 6, and the enemy spends about 25 episodes on that. The remaining six-ish volumes of the manga are the time skip, and the enemy chooses to cover all of that in 11 to 12 episodes. Uh, so thanks to that, a lot of the back and forth between these two and Light is pretty much lost, and Nears uh, pretty much finds out a lot of stuff just like really conveniently, almost through magic, uh, which Wait. is <laughs> uh, which is uh, kind of at odds with what the appeal of the show is supposed to be. So as far as David Horowitz goes, I thought he was pretty good as Mello. Uh, his portrayal of Mello's hot-headed personality made for a pretty good contrast with Cappy's performance, so I like that a lot. And uh, speaking of Cappy's performance, I like that a lot too, and um, honestly, that's one of my favorites out of the entire dub. Uh, she's really great at making Nier sound smug and call throughout any scene he's in, and uh, it really did a lot to make Nier stand out for the other two elves. And uh, I'm, also pretty, I'm also pretty okay with how Nier ultimately wins, since I felt like... Um, I felt like that tied his and Mello's characters together pretty nicely, and uh, but it doesn't really qu work quite as well as it did in the manga. Uh, mostly thanks to the fact that we didn't spare, spend nearly as much time with these two. Okay, yeah, but okay, yeah, but anyway, these two are great. I especially like Kathy. Great stuff. I think that's the nicest thing I've heard anyone ever say about Mello and Nier in my entire existence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So they Noah, what, what do you have to say? Well, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's Sneeves' turn. Excuse Sneeves. me. I'm sorry. Sorry, I keep on going back to the "we're playing a game" motif because mind games are all what this show is about. Yeah, uh, yeah. I liked neither of these characters particularly well. Mellow's a misanthropic creep, and Nier is a boring, half-baked imitation of Al. But the performances that we got were really good. Uh, David Kerwitz as Mellow had the punk rock vibe that really would have come, Oh, come on, you're not my father. I'm, fi I'm really 15, you know. I'm going out on my own. From the introduction, the little shit. You're not my shit. real dad. God. Exactly. The little <laughs> shit was... That adolescent id that was totally in rebellion about reading this violent comic book, you can't stop me, I'm my own person. It <laughs> was a, it was insufferable to live with, but to listen to, totally what you'd get for a spoiled super genius little shit. Uh, and as for Kathy Weslock, uh... She played the calm, calculating, ridiculous boy child to uh, the best of her hilt. Uh, that little bit where the investigation committee sort of snubbed him at the end said, We're not following your orders, Nier. And, oh, okay. I guess I'll just be over here then. Uh, she didn't have much range to do with that role, but what little she got was quite serviceable for it. It's not a really a demanding role. She just has to talk into a microphone explaining stuff. And yeah, there's nothing really to fault there for either of them, aside from the fact that these are poorly written characters who don't have the same compelling dynamism that the manga and anime's first half had that was lost in the second, but say la vie. 
I'm trying to think of like an interesting way to like interject like how can I say this differently than what you just said but um, I think what I can add to this is that Mellow and Nier's uh, existence for the last 15 years, however long the show's been out, has been relegated to poor L substitute characters. And I'm, I went into a rewatch of the show trying to view them not as that, but as uh, a different set of obstacles, not exactly supposed to be like L. Yes, I know Milo was supposed to get the half of L that was all about eating sweets, and Mello was supposed to, or Nier was supposed to get the part of him that was like crouched over gremlin looking character. But honestly, it made sense that you would have different people to go up against because from the way the show would naturally go, L would have to die. He, he would just inevitably have to die. So I don't think there could have been any other substitute of a detective that could have matched that level, so I don't really hate uh, the what we got here. Like, this is about as good as we were going to get. Um, so to go off of that, as far as the acting goes, uh, it's very interesting that both David and Kathy, from uh, what I saw in their interviews, they actually said that they both came from slightly different backgrounds than voice acting going into this. Uh, David was uh, in theater a whole lot, so that's why you don't see a whole lot of him in anime stuff, because he does, like you said, TV work and a whole lot of local theatrical stuff. And Kat okay. Kathy is actually a production assistant, uh, so she did a lot of, you know, in the studio kind of stuff mm. before jumping into nice. the actual, yeah, before doing the actual voice acting. This is, of course, years before My Little Pony was actually produced. Right, right, right. Now, and um, as far as the actual performances are, Kathy's, yeah, I agree with you, Steams, that her role, her whole job in this is mostly just to mono yeah. monotone, monologue into a microphone, and... That she does it well. Um, like she keeps oh, yeah. she keeps her uh, her emotions, well, his emotions, I should say, uh, kind of very very hidden. So you can't quite figure out what's going on in his head right there. All all you have are the toys he's playing with as a clue as to what he's thinking about. Like okay, so he's playing with dolls, therefore he views the characters as dolls. Or he's playing with dominoes. This whole thing is like a domino match. You just topple one over and the whole thing goes down. I'll, I'll give him credit, it's visually amusing, um, it just, it, it's kind of too quirky for the serious tone the show is going for. You have a character who's, yeah. who's trying to talk about the uh, the intricacies of multiple death notes and tearing pages out of death notes and multiple Kiras and you know, like, very intricate stuff, while at the same time fiddling with a tower of matches. Like, one of these things is not like the other. But one of these things is not the same. It really isn't, but I can't yeah. I can't hate on uh, Kathy's performance of it because it's an interesting voice to listen to. She's got a very uh, distinct girl playing uh, woman playing a younger male character voice, and we've heard a whole lot of them. Like there's a whole lot of women who play very good young male characters. I don't think I've heard an equivalent to Kathy before in any other uh, dub work before, even ones that were supposed to be like more lower pitch like this. I think the closest one I can think of is maybe Mona Marshall. And even then, it's you know, it's slightly different. And David is uh, almost like a surfer. I got the implication that he was trying to put like this uh, kind of like dude kind of inflection into Mello's acting. I don't think that quite uh, influenced the character very much. Um, and as you said, Jet, um, it, it did feel like the character, a lot of the character's development got cut from the show because he doesn't seem to get nearly as much focus as Nier does. So yeah. <laughs> doesn't really do the acting any good, uh, or it does, or the performance uh, in terms of memorability. But um, 
it's good. You know, it, it's uh, it's pretty good for um, uh, for what it is. You know, there's not a whole lot of juicy content in there. Um, mostly just kind of there to chew the scenery and uh, talk about uh, his own inadequacies. Um, but it's a fun voice to listen to. Because uh, like I said at the beginning of this, I watched the show without any visuals for a good chunk of it. And it, every time he came on screen, David was... Uh, came on audio, David was interesting to listen to. Um, yeah, so th there are some nice things to say about Mellow and Nier. Can we all agree that uh, the hating Mellow and Nier camp can uh, lessen down a little bit in 2018? Yeah, yeah, maybe here, here. pick up the manga. Yeah, yeah, I, I've never really been in that camp since, like you said, no, I like... I was always under the impression that that L kind of has to die for the story to progress, because Light's downfall can only ever really be satisfying if he gets really close to winning. And you kind of can't have that if L's still alive, so... Right, yeah, the, the options were either we end this, we finally end the series with Kira being caught, or we kill the guy who was going to make that happen. Yeah, I really thought that um, that David did a really good job kind of portraying Mello as sort of the Seattle grunge team. <laughs> Kurt Cobain lives again! <laughs> like, just angry for really no reason than just being mad at himself, but taking it out on everybody around him. Like, I, yep. I, really, I really have to respect that side of the performance, because... Like, he, he gets some really good moments in that episode or two where he's just off doing his own thing. But, uh, I guess really the reason why I'm here is Kathy Wieselak. Because Nier just sucks up all the screen time in that 11 episodes. But she really gives, you know, for such a childish voice, she gives it such a, gives him such a menacing presence. Yeah. You can like, never quite know what's in his head. The the whole sequences where there where he's sort of um, where he's almost painted light into a corner and he's internally reacting to it. Like you get this, you really get the sense that Nier is as smart as he lets on. And like I I this is one of my favorite performances of Kathy Weaselock. Mm -hmm. Like, up there with, uh, really up there with Garcia Lovelace, who is also a really good character in and of himself. Which one was Gar Garcia? Was the one from the OVA from, um, Roberta Fletcher? No, 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 Gar he's a little kid. Yeah, he, who, he's, uh, he's, he's a kid who has the baby. Yeah, from, okay, that's what I thought. Like that that was a really good story arc he has in in both the actual series and Roberta's Blood Trail, but I digress. Maybe one day we'll get we'll get some people together to do like a classics episode. Nier has a stage presence. Mm -hmm. And it, it is palpable. And Mello Like I, I understand what Jet's saying, because I've also read the manga and his his story arc is the one that gets sacrificed. And it's kind of a shame, because there's some really cool stuff in there that ended up getting cut out. Maybe if the show was, like, 52 episodes instead of 37. No, 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 we don't want more episodes. <laughs> Maybe they're well... Trust me, trust me, the mellow work is at least a little worth it for that cat and mouse game before he ends up getting killed off. Alright, just tell me this. In the original story, does he finally get some goddamn protein in his diet instead of just sugar? Nope. How, how is he not, like, ten feet wide by now? Because... 
your brain burns that much calories? <laughs> I forgot I about that line. I... <laughs> I forgot the line. You don't gain calories Death Note logic. if you burn it with your brain power. Uh, uh, there is just one last thing I have to do before we move on to this section. Hello, yeah. hello, sir. Would you like some chocolate? <laughs> chocolate? I remember chocolate. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was one of the good old Death Note memes. <laughs> memes, they don't die, they just find new life. So are we ready to move on? Yep. I think so. So next up, we have basically the main love interest of Light, Yagami, who is Misa Mane, who is more or less the second person to take on the title of Kira, and her Shinigami partner, because now we're getting into the Shinigami. But um, Misa Mane basically... She spends the show in a constant state of helping Kira out, and then losing her memory, and then helping Kira out, and then losing her memory. And her Shinigami Rem is basically... She's actually... I don't know if it was ever specifically stated that she was in love with Lisa. Uh, it, 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 uh, well, says as such, so... Pretty obvious. It's right. pretty obvious. Well, she just said... I mean, they state it aloud. The most that she says is that she has developed feelings for. Okay. You can God. take that as you will. And oh, come on. When a Shinigami falls in love with a human, then that's when they die, when they use to write someone's name in a death note. Yes. Guys, which... this is this is clearly a queer romance. I'm sorry. I don't know how you cannot see this. Yeah. But more or less, Light ends up using Rem to kill L and... In the process, she has to die because she's extending Misa's lifespan. Yep. You, you know, you really have to wonder how yes, old, how long Misa gets to live towards at the end. Because there were two Shinigami who sacrificed their lives for her. Granted, we don't know exactly how long Shinigami gets to live, but... but like, basically, the way the, the Death Note works with Shinigami is... When they kill a person... They get whatever lifespan that person had mm -hmm. added to their life. So, theoretically, you could live forever. You just gotta keep slicing years off of humans. Yep, so we find out that right. Misa lived to be 200. And <laughs> Misa Mane is played by Shannon Chan Kent, who you would recognize as Pinkie Pie in My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. She's Joy Pepper in the the new CGI Superbook series. She's Amy Kwan in uh, the Netflix King Kong series, Kong King of the Apes. And uh, Fabiola in Black Lagoon. Now, Rem is played by Colleen Wheeler. And she, she has a few anime roles here and there, such as uh, Luke's in Saber Marionette J and... Uh, Ralph's mother and Master Keaton. But, you know, mid-2000s cartoon fans would probably recognize her as Mystique from X-Men Evolution. Specifically, the, the second X-Men cartoon. The one, right. Yeah. The actually good one, not K-1 
campy fun one. Ooh, 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 that's a can of worms. I don't think you want to open on this episode, Roots. In any case, Jet, what did you think of Misa hey and Rem's Okay, so I'll start with Rem since that'll be real quick. Um, I always liked how otherworldly Colleen Wheeler's voice sounded, which fits since Rem is, well, a Shinigami. Um, it's really unsettling, but at the same time, she can also sound kind of gentle and warm when she needs to be, which uh, fits since, you know, she's supposed to care a lot about Misa, and, uh, and, and uh, it's really telling that she's... It's really telling how much she cares about Misa that she's actually willing to put up with white. Um, as for Misa, I'll, I'll start with um, Shannon's performance since that's another one I really like for the dub. Um, she's really great at sounding bubbly and energetic without going full on diabetes levels of sugar. Um, <laughs> and while also uh, while also making okay. Misa sound just a little unhinged since she's so psychotically devoted to white. Uh, as for Misa the character, well, uh, this is another case where Oba's sexism kind of muddles with the story. Okay, uh, Misa is clear. <coughs> okay, a so Misa is clearly supposed to be a Harley Quinn type character that she's hopelessly devoted to someone who couldn't care less about her. But here's the thing: Harley Quinn, or at least the version that Paul Dini wrote, uh, is meant to be pure. Is meant to be viewed as purely sympathetic, in that there's never a moment where you aren't supposed to think she wouldn't be better off thinking the Joker. Uh, but since Oba clearly wants you to think that Misa is the dumbest person alive, which, okay, honestly, she's not even really that stupid. She plays light before they even meet. Uh, the tone of her character is always kind of stuck between light being afraid as an abuser and Misa being afraid as some dumb bimbo who keeps getting in the way. Yeah. And the result is kind of messy. I mean, it's a shame, too, because personality-wise, I actually like Misa a lot, and I think she could have been really interesting and had some somewhat less sexist. But, uh, we're stuck with the version we have, and, uh, the version we have is kind of disappointing. But Shannon's performance is real good, I like that. These characters really deserve better. Oda does not, <laughs> does not treat his women well at all, and it shows. In terms of the performance, uh... Colleen Wheeler's Rem was just a very hoarse and scary person. Uh, I'm not doing a good impersonation of her voice well. She played it low and heavy and clotting, like something damp that, again, carried that supernatural weight of the Shinigami well. And, sorry, it, it seemed fairly obvious to me that Rem was in love with Misa. After the Shinigami jealous killed the human that would have murdered her, mm -hmm. then that death note fell to Rem, and then Rem inherited the feelings. I don't know, it was some bizarre pretzel logic, but clearly Rem cared about Misa, and while I don't know if Misa could reciprocate that in any way, because I don't think she was necessarily into death god ladies, still worked out. Uh, the performance of Misa, though, uh, that was quite the broad range that we were dealing with. Uh, Misa goes through a whole hell of a lot. She is put through a torturous plot roller coaster, is the cheerful peppy goth girl, uh, the bubbly teen who then becomes the more bored but still upbeat wife. She also goes through hellish tortures, privations, separations, etc. Uh, yeah, we had a I personally found Shanna Chan Kent did, uh, she had the teenage bubbliness that really captured that feeling of a high schooler university student with a crush, and I think that 
that's what this character is supposed to be. She is someone who is not particularly worldly, a little immature, but not stupid either, contrary to what our author seems to think. Misa feels like what Death Note's target audience would actually be like if they were given these dread supernatural powers. She'd admire this person who, or force that delivered justice from beyond, and then want to find this Kira and meet them. And then finally, when she meets them and find out, oh, he's a handsome, wonderful boy, does fall head over heels in love because she is a sad naive person who really hasn't lived all that much and is still feeling her way out in the world and honestly yeah I I found on my rewatch I can't believe I missed how likable this character was even the you know Light's sister and Light's mother and all of the characters on, on the Kira investigation team they all really like her and are happy to have her around and it's so good to see that that girlish Japanese dub or sub performance there carried over to make that less of the twee cutesy high pitched voice that Japanese women are sometimes supposed to have when or to appear cute in society makes sense in translation and I'm very pleased with that role and honestly wish we could have had wish that both voice actresses could have had better well better characters could have been given a fair shake of the shift in all the wheeling and dealing and plot plotting goodness just well to to play to credit to what you guys were saying she is not dumb she's uh very resourceful in what she does uh the biggest crime that you could say against misa is that she's just unambitious, at least compared to the change the world mentality that Light has. Like, she knows what she likes, she knows what will make her happy, and she uses clever means to pursue it. You know, she kind of locks Light into a bit of an obligation. Like, that that's kind of clever. And honestly, yeah, I, I, I get where the, the dislike of her comes in, because she's not written to be uh, emulated. Like, I can't see anyone looking at Misa's character and saying, I want to be like that. But she's definitely someone who I would enjoy hanging out with. I, I want to point out that um, one thing about Rem's character, uh, about Rem's actress, uh, Colleen Wheeler, is that um, she was actually told to um, try to uh, emulate the, um, the voice, the pitch of the Japanese, like some actors are, because Rem was originally voiced by a male Japanese seiyu, not a woman. Oh. So you had a very low-voiced, um, you know, pitch coming already. So Colleen's voice uh, just kind of matched that, which I found interesting because her natural speaking voice does not sound like her uh, her Rem voice. Um, it's also the same uh, low, sullen, almost African American type voice that she used as. Um, as Mystique in uh, X-Men, so I was actually a little surprised when I looked up her uh, her bio and found that she was, in fact, white, because for years and years I thought she was African-American. Um, and that, that's all really, uh, really kind of a good indication about uh, her deep range of voice. Like, she uses this distinct low voice um, and doesn't, em doesn't emulate the, her emotions a whole lot. Um, she said in the background information that she was trying to avoid being too expressive because if she did, then it would kind of break her personality. Like it would make her like too excited or too sad. Um, so she, she has to get across all of the emotions 
just through very strong acting without letting her voice get too high up and excited like this. Um, so all, all props on Colleen. I was really impressed by that. Um, my second favorite Shinigami would have been number one, except uh, the actual favorite Shinigami in the show is just like, really hard to compete against. But honestly, really good job on Colleen. And as for Shannon, um, which, by the way, to go off of what you're saying, Roots, about her past voice acting credits, yes, to all you bronies in the audience, we know that she plays Pinkie Pie not in Friendship is Magic, but in the previous series. We know that the voice for Pinkie Pie oh, in the My Little Pony series is Andrea Libman. Please don't pitchfork us. We got our resources. But as far as uh, Shannon's role in this show, she I like that you said that she has a lot of range themes, because I also wrote that down. I wrote, like... Because in retrospect, I was I thought I kind of pegged her for being a little more one note in the voice department. But really, in going back and watching it, she's sad when she needs to be. She's uh, she's like deep in thinking when she's hearing like the backstory about how you can kill a Shinigami, and she's all uh, like she's actually very deeply invested in this idea about love is the only thing that can kill a Shinigami. And when she needs to be perky and happy, and I'm gonna be a good girl now and go to bed by myself. Good night, honey. You know, it's, it's the believable, love-struck fangirl voice to her. I don't really think that uh, we could have expected a better performance out of this. It's very... It, it's the best adaptation of the Japanese archetype that we could have gotten in an English translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's... Uh, yeah, that's, that's all I got for it. Um, oh, also, also um, just to point out that... Uh, she uh, uh, she also kind of like slurs some of her words a little bit, which this is more of an indication about the good uh, directing and writing that we had. So going back to the work of the director and the writers, uh, good job on giving distinct voices to the different characters, like in the different levels that they are thought-wise. Like Misa's not the super high ambitious one; she's more world or not worldly, but more um, materialistic, I guess. Like. Go back in that first episode where she shows up and look at the toy she has in her room. Girl yep. is messed up. She's Girl. teenage goth, man. That's not. I'm sorry. It's like no, she's. I knew teenage. Have you been goth. to a hot topic? Have you bought your Death Note merchandise lately? Come on. I've met teenage goths, and even by that standard, Misa's toy collection freaks me out. Freaks well, agree to disagree. Mm. But yeah, good acting on Shannon. Yeah. One thing that kind of interested me with the uh, performance of Misa, like in that in that third act after Elle dies, um, her story arc with Light kind of almost becomes sort of a Goodfellas kind of <laughs> <in> the third <laughs> act. <laughs> I always and wanted I, to serious. be a Shinigami. Now, 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 is she like, which character is she? Um. Is she Joe Pesci? Uh, not Joe Pesci, no, no. not DeVito, uh, but uh, De Niro, but um, the main guy. The the wife of the uh, of the main guy. I can't remember his name. Oh oh, the one who was it Ray Liotta? Yes, Ray Liotta. He's the main actor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so she's yeah. the wife who who flushes the cocaine down the toilet. Right. Right. What like I I kind of got that vibe from it and. Like, I had not seen Goodfellas when I watched Death Note the first time. Oh. And watching it now, I made that connection, especially with the whole thing where she's trying to pour Light a drink and he and he just tosses it aside. Yeah. Yeah, like, they're, not, they're not the best-treated girlfriends slash wives. No, no. 
It's almost as though the author's a misogynist. Hmm. Okay, 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 yeah. okay now, that is one point where I will not defend the offer, but, like, White is, like, clearly supposed to be Francis the Abuser. Granted, the problem is that Misa is also supposed to be seen as stupid, but we, we are supposed to like White for how he treats Misa. In terms of the rest of her performance, she's cheery and bubbly when she needs to be. She's frightened when she needs to be, because of that whole 50 days basically being tied up kind of thing. Like, I, there's nothing bad I can say about her performance. Like, and even, even what I said before with, um, with her interactions with Kiyomi, Shannon Chan Kent got the character of Nisa. And I, I really have to respect the direction she took, even though, you know, the story didn't take very good care of her. Who does this show take good care of? <laughs> who, who comes out of this well uh, I ask you I'd say Matsuda and probably the next person we'll talk about mostly <laughs> and um as for Rem uh like I really like the sort of dour melancholy performance and you know like Noah said she couldn't emote too much so, any expression of emotion had to be done through her dialogue. So, I also have to give props to the scriptwriter for making sure that that Rem could convey her emotions through what she said rather than the way she said it. Uh, so, are we ready to move on to our three individual yeah. characters? Misa, get yourself a better man. Uh, so, starting us off with our... Uh, our individuals um, we have Light's Shinigami partner and basically <laughs> the almost the cackling narrator of the of everything going on uh, Ryuk he loves apples he's he's not in it to help Light he's just in it to have a good time this is summer vacation <laughs> for him <laughs> He spent centuries watching the human world and killing people off, and he just he just needs some time off. So he tricks another uh, Shinigami into dropping his death note. He takes a note and he, he puts it in the human world. He agrees to kind of help the person who picks it up, but not entirely. Uh, so in any case, uh, Ryuk is played by Brian Drummond, who you would recognize as... Uh, the voice of both Vegeta and Yajirobe in the original dub of Dragon Ball Z. And in fact, he come, Brian Drummond comes back to play an imposter version of Vegeta in Dragon Ball, in the Funimation dub of Dragon Ball Super. Hmm. Brian Drummond also played uh, Tiger the Wind in Monster Rancher. He was also Andre in Master Keaton. Zex Marquis in uh, Mobile Suit Gundam Wing. And... This one is a little near and dear to my heart because this is this was my Spider-Man cartoon. He played Venom in Spider-Man Unlimited. Ooh. All right, so Jet. Okay. Uh, well, I've always really loved Brian Drummond's take on Ryuk. Um, I don't remember who exactly voiced Ryuk in Japanese, uh, but I always recall he mostly sounded like a really kind of shady old man. Uh, so Ryan's voice. I mean, so. Sorry, Brian's voice having a much raspier and drier quality to it 
that kind of helped to make the characters sound more like the agent of death he's supposed to be. And, um, it also helps that even though he's, like, you know, kind of supposed to be creepy most of the time, he can also be, like, really funny when he wanted to be, and that was really great. So, uh, yeah, I really dug his Ryuk. It's great stuff. Seems? There's... There's a moment that I think comes near the beginning, where death mode is slowly unwinding, where we just see the long languid pacing and the drawn out bleach shots and this show is really selling hard on the bleak dreary world that this is this self-serious show wants to be and then Ryuk clacks a joke he just says something a little snarkily a little pithily and he chuckles and you just know at that point that things are starting to get interesting and that whole slow opening crawl really builds up to that moment where we get that the ennui of both the misanthropic light and the disaffected Ryuk are now coming into something neither of them really expected and are about to have the time of their lives. Uh, Brian Drummond just is pitch perfect here. This is the type of devil figure that I thought I wouldn't see in modern media for a long time. The idea of the antagonistic force as something that is just so apathetic and nihilistic and doesn't really care and then starts to come alive and does all that Mephistophelian yanking of the chain and winding people up but only does so just because nothing matters might as well watch you as you pave your own way to hell and uh, he is at times harassing light at times he is advising light at times he is lights toadying or toadying to light doing what he's what he is suggested and told as he as he's manipulated by this sociopath but the the sheer enjoyment that Ryuk gets out of watching these hijinks unfold makes him the perfect audience surrogate. And I can see why this show is so market, uh, succeeded so well in that teen audience that it did when you have a character like Ryuk filling that audience gap. I have nothing but positive to say about it. Just that that slow, meticulous intonation, and then that subtle purr, that just... Mm, so much fun. So you liked it? Dryly amused, guttural misanthropic delight. That's what I have written here. Boom. Hmm. Noah? I'm, I'm kind of reveling back from Steve's observation there, because I was like, did, did you, like, write his obituary or something? Because that was, like, masterful descriptions. <laughs> I write stuff out, and sometimes the vocabulary. Well, I'm glad, because that that is a lot of, uh, of what Brian's performance deserves. It definitely deserves to be spoken of with high praise, because even compared to the Japanese, which, uh, by the way, Je the, uh, the Japanese voice for Ryuk was Nakamura Shido. 
um, who uh, Brutes would probably know best as the voice of Dragon in Ping Pong. Mm. A couple of, you know, little tiny things in there, but uh, for this show, um, yeah, we have all these mostly regular-sounding characters uh, that the directors chose because they wanted the English cast to sound like the kind of people who you would see in normal life. But they totally cut loose on Ryuk's acting and being gravelly, growl, like there's a growl in there, it's very breathy, and all throughout the show, it, it, it goes through like the wide range of amused, bored, lustful, deceitful, unamused anymore, and that whole range there is just so much fun to watch that I, I kind of, I, I, I could not have thought of a better way to portray this character than the way that Brian did it in the vo in the vocal register. So, yeah, I got nothing but good things to say about this. I I'm only jealous that I like we didn't have a camera watching him at all times. So like, get up and and dance and laugh around. It's like the kind of gleeful joy that you get out of listening to stuff like uh, Mark Hamill's portrayal of the Joker from the old Batman series. And I I'm kind of wondering if that was actually an inspiration because there's. You could draw a lot of comparisons between the Joker from that series and Ryuk in this show. Yeah. So. And you know, on that note, I do have to wonder if um, Willem Dafoe in the 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 American Netflix version of this mm -hmm. took inspiration from. I, I feel like he kind of had to. Because there's, yeah. Now I have to wonder also if um. But a bit of synthesis, if Brian Drummond didn't take some of his acting in this show from William Defoe's portrayal as the Green Goblin from the old Spider-Man movies. Ooh. That is a good thought. Just like, you know, a circle of influence. Yeah. But, um, I, I really like Brian Drummond's performance of Ryo, because it, like... Ryuk sounds like a guy who smokes, like, an entire carton of cigarettes a day. Just that phlegmy coffee cackle he does. <laughs> yeah, there we are. There we are. It, in terms of the actual performance, like, he is... Brain Drummond embodies what I like about, um... Barry Yandel as Zaruba in the in the Garo anime franchise. Like he's he's like the Mr. Gazoo on Fred Flintstone's shoulder. <laughs> That's not a comparison I thought you were just, gonna go for. Just like he's willing to help, but then he makes light feel bad whenever whenever he screws up. Like and especially in the in like early on in the show where he's being followed by the FBI agent and just Ryuk's cackling because he knows what's going on, but Light is completely unaware, and he actually has to kind of grill Ryuk to find that out. Like it, it's one of those things where you can really tell Brian Drummond had a lot of fun. While I'd love to see, like, camera perform- uh, Like, a camera showing his performance doing the anime. Mm -hmm. I would really love to see that, actually, for the live-action movies where he does the voice of Ryuk. Because, like, that CGI Ryuk 
And, and I mean this in in terms of the uh, the Japanese live action films, not the not the Netflix one. Right, right. But that CGI Ryuk they use for the Japanese films is just so animated. Like even more so than than in the anime version, because you know, like it's Madhouse and character designs that really weren't designed to move. But I I, I like the uh, the sort of hey kid want to smoke kind of kind of portrayal that Brian Drummond gives Ryuk like like the PSA shady guy who's trying to offer the kid a cigarette hey kid it's kind of funny it's kind of funny you say that because this is one of the versions where he doesn't actually tempt White into doing anything there are versions where he does do that (laughs) I was gonna say yeah. one of the best things they about suck. him is his impartiality to the whole thing. He it takes him multiple days for Light to use the book before he even shows up to himself. Yeah, and but then even then his presence is just like it's kind of the the sort of Mephistopheles kind of character. Uh, he doesn't even get anything out of it aside from just amusement. Right. And in the end, he's he's got to put Light's name in his book, and like that that was a really good scene. But we'll yeah. get to that here mm, yes. very very shortly. Uh, so moving on, we have the greatest detective in the world, simply known as a letter L. Wait, wait! I thought the greatest detective of all time was Sherlock Hound. Shut up. Oh. <laughs> Uh, he comes to Japan to investigate the Kiro murders, uh, ends up befriending Light, knowing pretty much, at least at any given time, with a 5% suspicion that uh, Light is Kira, and ultimately, through a series of Deus Ex Machina events, uh, he ends up getting killed. So, L is played by Alessandro Giuliani, who you would know as... Um, Aaron Fox in Lego Nexo Knights. Uh, he was Gambit in X-Men Evolution. Uh, in terms of anime stuff, uh, he was Prince Toma in the second Ranma one-half movie. Uh, he was also Kid Icarus in Captain N. And while I typically try to shy away from live-action roles when going over actors and characters on this show... He plays Lieutenant Felix Gaeta in oh, wow. Battlestar Galactica, the the sci-fi version. All right, so Jet, let's start off with you. Okay, and so going into the actual performance, I have to say that this one was actually a really interesting case for me back in the day. Uh, because, like I said before, I watched the anime in Japanese first, and uh, L's Japanese voice actor was uh, Kape Yamaguchi, who... Um, he has a pretty distinct voice, since he's also Usopp in One Piece, he's Inuyasha, and he's also the current voice of Lupin III. Uh, just to name a few things he's done. And, uh, Alessandro's performance doesn't really sound anything like that, which was a little bit off-putting at first. Uh, but the more I heard the performance, the more it kind of grew on me, and uh, now I actually prefer it to the point where it's, it's basically my favorite performance of the whole show. Uh, he's really great when it comes to L's, like, cool demeanor, and he gives him, you know, that kind of air of professionalism. Uh, but it did not really stood out to me where all the little moments where L gets to be really sassy. Uh, since it kind of gives him a little bit of extra charm that, honestly, a lot of the other characters lack. And it also helps to contrast L with Light a little bit more, since, uh, 
personality quirks aside and, you know, the way they view their ideals are kind of essentially written as the same character. Uh, but anyway, I really love Alessandro Giuliani's performance as L, and it was a real pleasure getting to listen to it again. Uh, getting to Alessandro Giuliani's particular performance, oh, I love this. This was probably the best performance out of this, even above some of our final characters. I found that the uh, say you just made the character kind of flat and dry and uh, particularly monotone, but here you can hear the character thinking over every word and trying to put his words into place while his brain is three steps ahead. And so you're never sure whether he's come to a conclusion or is just about to get to one now. Like that. Just absolutely... Uh, I could totally buy that this character is a super genius who is thinking so fast that he's just, uh, he has to have all of those very meticulous, uh, those quirky habits to just try and manage and process the outside world that the whole living in the darkened rooms and running around with no shoes on and all of that it seemed like this is the sort of superhuman almost a stereotype of what the rain man would be like where uh, almost a cliche of op of autism but played so nuanced i guess that i i I was totally sold that this is a person who is not neurotypical, but is so brilliant that you can see why in this crazy world where death gods hand out notebooks and teenage sociopaths over-engineer crazy ways to protect their diaries, that this character would go. I remember reading somewhere a few folks in the autistic community saying, yeah, I really identify with L," and seeing some really interesting breakdowns on that character saying, yeah, this character could totally be on the spectrum. And I could totally believe that. This performance that uh, Alessandro Giuliani did kind of cemented that for me. I used to work as a reading tutor with some folks who were on the spectrum and it's really quite... I saw quite a bit of that in there, at least from my limited experience. Ah, oh, Alessandro Giuliani. I can see why you won as many theater awards as you did after moving on from voice acting, because, man, you're good. Mm. <laughs> okay. Again, I'm going to give you a BAFTA or something for that description. Yeah, um, what what else? What else can I say about uh, Alejandro Giuliani's performance as L? Because, um, from the sounds of it, it's not exactly similar to the, um... Uh, to the Japanese version of it. It sounds like there's quite a bit of a difference to it, but that's good because in translating any dub from Japanese to English, you want to make it, um, you want to give it its own English flavor to it. You know, you want to take advantage of the language instead of just making it a one-to-one -one translation. And in the way that Aleja Alessandro, not Alejandro, Alessandro, sorry, um, you can kind of hear the gears turning in his head. Like, you can see the sparks flying. You can see the the thoughts jumping from place to place. It's his, his voice kind of like goes up and down and dialects back and forth and makes it jumps between a whisper and a louder voice at weird places. It's 
I think the reason why it's so weird is why it's so unorthodox is because apparently Alessandro said himself that even he didn't get the character. Like, we ourselves don't quite get what's going on in El's brain. <laughs> I could see that. Even Al Alessandro himself said, you know what? I, I don't know what his, his deal is. Uh, I'm sure I'll figure it out, but I don't quite know what it is. So that that's kind of an indication of like a well... Um, a very quirky character. Even the actor himself didn't know what to, what, or what he was thinking. He knew what to do with them, um, and yeah, listening to his um, uh, his uh, low grumble is uh, also gratifying because um, it, it's a uh, it, it kind of portrays the, uh, the the loneliness that he feels as well. Uh, you get that sense that like you kind of feel a little sorry for the guy that. Um, and I think this is described in one of the movies. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Roots, but uh, he grew up in an orphanage, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, I've seen I've seen the clip uh, where he's talking over camera to some of the orphans from the orphanage that he used to go to, and he's describing uh, what he thinks of monsters. Uh, he's kind of describing them as lonely creatures, I think he said, that um, should be almost pitied, and it feels like he's kind of talking about himself. So, all, all that information in mind, Alessandro's portrayal of this uh, is really quirky, really unorthodox, and is probably the, uh, the embodiment of this antisocial genius role that we've ever heard before. It's, uh, I really don't have anything else to add on top of what you guys said to it. It's just, it's just a shame he didn't last throughout the entire series. Yeah. But, um, oh. What can I add to the character that's the world's easiest cosplay that you guys haven't already said? Just a white shirt. Uh, that's all. You, white shirt and black pants. That's all you need. In particular, I really like the the sort of mini arc in the Fifty Days of Captivity for Light and Nisa. He's trying to work together that oh, the killings have started up again, but. Light and Misa are, are right here. I can see everything they're doing, and yet everything is still going on business as usual. What's going on? Like, sort of the the mumbling to himself, the the lying to Light. Like, it, it shows L's character to a T, that he's willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. Even spy on the police, of course. <laughs> Even spy on the police force, but um, yeah, the, God, there, there's really not a lot more I can say. We're going to give this guy an Oscar, an Emmy, and put him in the National Archive. Yeah. Uh, that said, on that note, I I really like. This is more to the credit of the actual producers of the show at NTV and Madhouse. Um, the sound design for episode twenty-five. We're like the little minute noises are in the foreground. Yeah. The church bells, the rain. Oh, yeah, that was really good. That. Yeah, like, yeah, like I mean, like, I have I have my complaints about the adapter, but episode 25 was really good. Yeah. Was that the, um, uh, the light and yeah. L in the rain episode? Yes. Okay. Where they, where they throw in the, the Last Supper allegory for no reason. Where L washes Light's feet. Uh, so are we ready to move on to our last character? Yeah. Light Yagami is basically... He's Kira. 
he is basically Kira trying he's trying to become more or less a mortal god so uh, Light Yagami is played by Brad Swale who you would know as uh, Brock from Black Lagoon uh, he was Kurt Wagner aka Nightcrawler in X-Men Evolution so many X-Men actors in this show uh, he was Amuro Ray in Mobile Suit Gundam uh, Sai Fujiwara in Hikaru no Go and Kicker in one of the Transformer anime series, uh, Transformers Energon. Mm. Alright, so Jet, why don't you start us off? So, this role in Rock from Black Lagoon have always been the two things I kind of most associate with Brad Swall. <laughs> and uh, and uh, before I even started seriously paying attention to voice actors, I actually had a pretty good idea of who he was because of these two characters. Uh, funny enough, though, I have to say that re-watching the show, he actually sounded a little bit awkward for the first couple of episodes, since it took a little while for him to get the character. Uh, but once he does, he's fantastic. Like, he's really great at switching between Light's, you know, gentle, quote-unquote, heroic persona, and then the horrifying monster underneath the surface. And he does both of those things without tipping the beat. I especially appreciate all those little moments where Light has to, like, fake a response to something, and you can really feel the insincerity in Brad's performance. Um, and it's really great since the appeal of Light is mainly that you're supposed to be kind of fascinated by how... fascinated by the sheer audacity of his plans, while, you know, also being kind of repulsed by how terrible he is, and, you know, wanting to eventually see him get his dust, get his just desserts. And the show mostly works in that respect, with free with the exception of one little problem. How the anime changes the ending. Okay, so before I talk about that bit, let's recount some of Light's sins over the course of the show, excluding his whole judge and jury crusade. Okay, like, and I have an actual list here. <laughs> okay, so he kills a guy who, as far as he knows, did nothing wrong purely because the guy mocked him. He experiments on people just to cover himself, kills an innocent woman because she knows too much and mocks her as he sends her off to her death, turns at least four other people into serial killers to help cover himself, abuses women, he two-times women, and he sends his own father to his grave and has to literally pretend to care about it. And then lastly, he sets one of his girlfriends on fire while she begs for help. Uh, so, simply put, Light is not a nice person. Light is a monster. And part of the journey here is knowing that he will ultimately be made to pay for all the many horrible, horrible things he does. And in the manga, that basically happens. Light is made to... Light is really made to be begging for his life, like the little worm that he is. And it's a, it's perfect karma for someone who kills so many people without a second thought. Uh, but what happens in the anime instead... Is that he dies very peace? Is that he dies peacefully, and Light is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he dies peacefully, and Light is afraid is kind of afraid of being a tragic soul that's corrupted by the Death Note. Okay, and I'm not against the idea of Light being afraid as a tragic soul. Like the live action drama actually manages to make a really compelling character arc out of that, uh, but that's not what this version of Light is supposed to be. From beginning to end, this version of Light is meant to be 100% viewed as a villain. And for as many problems as I have with Oba's writing, the one thing he is consistently good at is that he is very consistent in framing Light as the villain. There is, you are never ever supposed to question that Light is a villain in manga. 
And the fact that the anime kind of, you know, botches things in that respect sort of brings the ad adaption down for me, and uh, it's part of the reason why I'm not sure if the anime aged as well as I hoped it would. Well, there are a couple reasons why it didn't age as well, but from what you're describing, because I haven't read the manga, you're saying that it consistently paints him as the bad guy from, like, chapter one all the way to Yeah, okay, yeah there's never, like, a yeah, not, there's never really a moment where you're actually supposed to think why he's the good guy. I mean, for Pete's sakes, when you get to the beginning of the time skip, and the anime actually has this too, which is why I'm kind of surprised it, it ended the way it did, is that when you get to the beginning of time skip, it is literally described as a dark age where Kira is the law. So you're clearly not supposed to think why he's a good guy. Right, and um, yeah, I, I never liked how they handled that time skip in the anime, actually, because it's kind of, like, there's no distinction, I guess, aside from the fact that some of the characters look a bit older. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a Oh, yeah. I... I absolutely hated this character, and I absolutely loved how Brad Swale just threw himself into this. I found early on, yeah, the delivery was a little, um, I guess wooden in places, but, uh, but that was par for the course. That was sort of the numbness that was supposed to be this meticulously crafted middle schooler, high schooler trying to uh, project this perfect image and go through his dreary day while feeling all this deep-seated sense of resentment of towards the world of this world is rotten. And when, uh, in the end of the very first episode where he gets the note and starts talking himself through the process of, wait, I've killed two people. And you can see Brad just completely, uh, starting to unhinge himself with that. And it was right away. You knew he got this character. I could get that, Unhingedness, the idea of Light Yagami being this entitled little misanthropic jackass who is so much smarter than other people and therefore thinks he's better than them, really coming out into, of course I've got this power, why not use it? It would be a waste! Uh, and seeing how Swale just could do that, turn on a dime from cool and methodical rational explanation to bored affectation of generically nice to uh, meticulous plotting to absolute mad passion of how dare you criticize me uh, yeah that was so on point uh, during the parts where Light loses the death note and gets loses his memory with it that that becomes a much more earnest sounding. You can hear sort of the no, I'm not Kira. I'm not. The, I'm. I don't. I'm not. Don't know what you're talking about, L. Absolutely on game. And I, while I can understand the 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 irritation at the manga's ending, where Light does have that freak out and he, the peaceful death that he seemed to have compared to the utter. Uh, tearing apart of his motives in the manga. I found that there was such a catharsis of finally seeing Light unmasked by the task force and seeing him laid bare and seeing his number one supporter laid bare as both 
raised people who had such a dysfunctional view of the world and themselves that they cannot bear to acknowledge the fact that they are imperfect and fallible and to be called on that. Uh, I found it was just such a rush to finally get that over with that bleeding out from the bullet and that fading out into death seemed almost a great way to let that series end and let that tension that had been building up over 32nd episodes to 37 episodes bleed out. And uh, while I can appreciate that, why that finale might not be as appealing, I just found the last moments we hear of Swale where he's just giving that ragged breathing as we, the music sort of fa uh, fades in and the silence uh, around his uh, sounds just fade out is cat point on direction. And uh, yeah, getting back to Swale's performance, so good. Hmm, well, that, that's a high praise indeed, calling it so good. I'm not sure if I can give it quite as high of a praise, except I uh, think I would refer to Brad's performance as really, really good, because, oh my god, this is really good to listen to. Um, I'm really ashamed that we actually don't hear Brad in a lot more stuff, because he's got the chops, man. He has got the chops for this role, and a whole lot of other ones as well, as you listed before. Um... Now, I do agree, I do agree with you, Jet, in that um, he doesn't start out the strongest voice. Um, he starts out almost confused, like he's kind of not quite sure what his character is. Um, I don't think they had nailed down the tone in those early episodes, which is, like we've said before, a bit of a hard tightrope to walk. But once they, once he figured out, uh, once he'd gotten like the fun, juicy lines out in those first episodes about how, and I will become the god of the new world, all that, you know, edgelord philosophical bullshit that he gets out of his system or about like you really get the idea early on that he's a bad guy because he contemplates killing random annoying people just because they're annoying him and yet it, yeah it's never not fun to listen to you know it's always consistent what's that can't deny it yeah it, you you want this like you want him to stick around because you're kind of enjoying watching the wheels in its head spin a little bit. Now, I don't quite enjoy one element of it. And that's the fact that um, earlier I said in this podcast that I was going to reference Batman the Animated Series. And this is where we are going to reference that. The, the, one of the revolutionary things that was done in the original Batman the Animated Series was that the actor for Batman would actually have a distinct different voice between when he played Batman and when he played Bruce Wayne. Kevin Conroy like had a distinct voice between the two of them and that was uh, something I kind of wanted to hear in this voice here because L really does or light sorry light has two faces that he puts on. He's got the kind honor student the the pinnacle of Japanese education that he puts on for the people around him. And then he's got, I'm in my room with a single lamp, contemplating how I'm going to salt, how I'm going to outwit the police voice. And there's no real distinction between the two. The, the speech pattern is the same, the, the pitch is the same. It's all very similar to each other. That That's kind of a minor nitpick, but it, it's kind of the one of those things where if I was directing a voice actor to uh, put on a mask for people around me to hide 
uh, who I really am, I would make that mask sound much more phony. You know, try, try to make it more obviously, this is not who I really am, but I'm going to put on a good face, yeah. because that's what you do. But, yeah. honestly, aside from that, I can't I can't find a qualm with Brad's performance. Yeah. And it really p reaches the apex. It reaches the pinnacle of fun to listen to in the final episode, when he's caught, he's not getting out of this one, and you got they put like a spotlight or something on him and he just <laughs> throws his head back and yeah. starts <laughs> laughing i can't possibly uh, do that justice man i have listened yeah. to that laugh and embarrassing amount of times <laughs> <laughs> i mean did you have it as a no. ringtone at some point jet okay because i'm probably going to do that after this episode download that as a ringtone might get me kicked out of work but it would still be worth it <laughs> so, yeah, take it away, Roots. Um, I, I'm assuming you're going to have uh, nothing but vile and contempt for Brad's performance because the rest of us had only good things to say, right? Well, I mean, unfortunately, I got to agree with you guys. <laughs> where's the, uh, it is? Where's the heavy criticism? Like it's, it is a very strong performance in a dub full of very strong performances. Like I. I guess I would say I'm not a lot of I'm not a very big fan of some of the dialogue he's given. The show does not really let Light treat Misa very well. Yeah. Like and I I I have to admit, I was kind of as much as I understood the context of the line, I was really kind of bugged by the um to Misa? I'm starting to I'm starting to rethink my opinion on striking women. Yeah. Went in his interior monologue thinking about Misa. Um. It's not something I can fault the, the dub for because it was probably. Yeah, weirdly, that was version. not in the manga, which is I... almost surprising, actually. <laughs> I mean, I have to wonder if some of the more misogynistic attitudes was, the, uh, was either a reflection of the original author's actual view of the world or was an attempt to try to make him less likable to uh, the and audience? It, 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 it's yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both because like i said before because like i said before while misa is kind of meant to be viewed as stupid you are also supposed to hate white for amusing her so yeah because <laughs> i i would believe it more if he was the only yeah 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 like yeah, that, yeah that's kind of the only problem if, like, if white was the only one it would be easier but he's not Right, right. Yeah. Like, I know we're not going to talk like, about him all, uh, at all, but Ray Pember is a dick to his fiance. Yeah, well, yeah. But um, moving moving along, because this is... While this episode is going to cut down, it, the recording's kind of long right now. Um, like, the standout moments where he, you know, I'll, I'll take a potato chip and eat it. And, um... Also, the uh, episode 25 when Rem actually manages to kill L, and Light just has to fake mourning him. Brad Swale gets a lot of opportunities to choose scenery, and it's... Brad Swale, you did good. Um, we need to move on to final thoughts. So, Jet, why don't you start us off? Uh, so, like I said in the beginning here, uh, Death Note was one of the very first manga I ever read. And for better or worse, it has always been a 
huge part of my experience as an animated manga fan. Uh, while I do have a lot of problems with Oba's sexism and his inability to write characters beyond how smart they are, I will say that the Depth Note manga mostly holds up. Uh, Takeshi Obata's art is still really fantastic, the thriller elements are a lot more fleshed out, and it's a little easier to sit through some of the aforementioned problems when they're in your face for a couple of panels and not a couple of minutes. Uh, far as the anime goes, though, uh, the dub holds up really well. It was really fun to go back and revisit that. And there are some moments where uh, the director, Tetsuro Araki's direction, kind of lends itself to the material in terms of how bombastic it is. Uh, but it also adds on some extra problems, and the whole changing the ending thing kind of kills the appeal of what made Death Note interesting to begin with. And while I'll always have some appreciation some appreciation for the manga, the anime hasn't really aged as well as I hoped it would. And uh, going through it for this episode was a bit of a rough time. But it was very fun to live tweet, so there was that. My own take on this was not so positive. Looking back on... As a series, it's a cracking great thriller. I just found it was very it was written for a certain audience in a certain place in a certain time. There are things about how that it doesn't make sense to to show this to someone in that age range now with how that show dealt with the omnipresence of the internet uh, it, after the time skip and before it seems like a very different beast uh, there are this is a sort of thing that is for the teenage misanthrope in your life and I can understand why people connected with it I can understand why I watched it back in the day but it's just not as clever as it thinks it is and isn't as the gr I, I've, if it wasn't for this dub, I don't think it would be held up to quite the same standard in the English-speaking world as uh, yeah. it net currently is. Yeah. How, how, how do I word this here? Because I come from a, uh, a bit of a different background on viewing this anime than uh, it sounds like most of you guys did, just because I hadn't seen the full thing until you know only very recently, and it was never a part of my... like. Um, my, my otaku Rolodex, as it were. Like, I never viewed this as... And it, it was never important to my life. And um, in viewing it from the perspective of an adult, I I do think it's well-written. I do really think that this show uh, is cleverly written in the first third. It is at its strongest where we are learning the rules of the Death Note. In the first 12 episodes when we're learning the rules... We're outwitting the police, we're using the Death Note in creative ways to get rid of them, of the people who are investigating Light. That's all really good stuff, and that's probably where I think the dub actually shines the most too, because all the actors are are as surprised by the supernatural events going on as we are, and they, they really convey that. So when a, guy, when a bus jacker sees Ryuk for the first time and loses his mind, we, it's believable. It's believably out of control. When a fiancé mourns her husband's death and then uses her creativity, uses her intelligence to deduce who could have been the killer, that's all really good stuff. Now, it's not to disparage the dub actors in you know the final two-thirds, because they do what they do very well with what they're given. It's not as well written as the first third of it, 
Um, but honestly, you go back and you watch any of the interviews that they did, or you, you even just listen to it without any visuals, you can feel a whole lot of passion in there. This feels very much like the kind of thing that could easily be translated into an audio-only format and still retain a lot of the, the heart and the passion and the drive to it. And as for actually showing it to people nowadays, mm, I, again, I'd say the first third of it still holds up as a great thriller, um, and especially for people who like, who like, you know, okay, if you buy the newspaper, or you open the newspaper just to do the puzzles, you will get a good kick out of the first part of this show. Uh, probably a good chunk of it as well. Um, but as far as that last third, your logic is just not going to be able to suspend itself after a lot of the stuff that happens in there. And I don't even want to want to like delve into the the deep philosophical thoughts about whether or not it was right or wrong to kill people because it wasn't people. It was not right to kill all the people. You do not have anonymity to the law. You cannot see everyone at all times. You cannot make prosecutions without due process. You may not have all the evidence in front of you at all times. So stop okay, defending yeah, okay, this bastard. Okay, one, one, one quick thing I will say that a lot of the whole is this philosophical debates kind of mostly cuts from anime fans. Like, I'm actually pretty sure the offers himself kind of said like, oh, no, we were just trying to make a thriller. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it, yeah, it's yeah. obvious, too, because this was not... Okay, the, okay, Brad Swale himself said that he figured out that uh, Light was a bad guy when he killed Ray Penber. So that was like episode four is when he figured that out. It took that early on in the show for the for the voice actor to figure out that he's a villain. And if it took the voice actor that quick to figure it out, then all y'all people should have figured that out too. Uh, honestly, really good dub. A lot of great talent that I'm really glad we got a chance to do this episode about. Thank you, Roots, for roping us into this because there's a lot of yeah, actors on yeah, here. Hey. I have more actors to look up uh, their their you know their backs their backstories their their resumes on now. Yeah. Um. So I guess it's time for my final thoughts. Um. This show has a lot of flaws, like a lot more than when I first watched the show back in like, 06, 07. Fresh out of high school, me didn't really particularly notice. Like, animation is stilted. The messaging is awkward. And treatment of women and, in general, the, the female characters was not the most warm and positive. But I'm happy to say that the dub... This is probably one of the strongest dubs the Ocean Group has ever produced. Like, I I had my misgivings with them for a little while, but I've been re-watching a lot of old anime and a lot of old anime dubs, and a lot of them still hold. Like, even... You know, even, like, 15, 20 years later, with new technology... That makes dubbing easier. We can now dub things, like, within two weeks of when they air in Japan. Like, the Ocean Group still... A lot of the dubs that I hold in very high regard come from them. And I, I'm really glad that we got to be able to talk about them today. And, you know, misgivings about the, the Death Note animated side. It, the dub holds very, very strong... And would I recommend this to a new anime fan nowadays? Like, probably not immediately. 
like I would have like maybe five ten years ago but it would definitely be something that I would suggest as they're getting into anime a little more I would probably I don't know what I'd suggest somebody start with probably like if we're talking about like are you talking about something similar to the show that you would recommend instead no no no, no. I mean just in general like what would today's anime fan starter pack be uh let's see you've got my hero academia if you want action if you want a thrill okay there isn't really anything specific if you want a thriller i mean i guess erased but it's not that popular it's popular but not that popular well actually if you want a Uh, uh, if you want a thriller with some deep philosophy to it i would actually recommend madoka magica Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah Madoka's Madoka's modern enough. Here, yeah, I, I think it. Yeah, I would <laughs> think it's. I would probably say like My Hero Academia, Madoka, and maybe like. If you, if we're covering all the shit. Okay, okay, well, okay, well, okay, well, Attack on Titan is obviously in there. Oh well, but... yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's but... a lot. I mean, that's a whole other podcast in itself. What the anime starter right. pack would be, but um. I, I am. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, it's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, for a long time, Death Note was held in high re- or, yeah, high regards as like one of the mm-hmm. earliest shows that people would watch. But it's not going to be something that um, I, I don't know how well it's going to hold up uh, to the younger, like today's middle schoolers. Who? Yeah, who, I mean, I would not recommend this to a middle middle schooler in the slightest. I probably wouldn't have well, even done so. <laughs> Well, no, I don't think any of us would. As adults, none of us would recommend that to a middle schooler. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Hey, my... I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I mean, again, like I said, the, the manga, in spite of some problems, the manga mostly holds up, and the anime, not so much. Yeah. But, but yeah, to... <laughs> I mean, so, in summation, this would be something I would recommend, but maybe a little later in somebody's journey of getting a damn. Uh, but right. if you would like to check out Death Note, um, it is licensed by Viz Media, which means it is available in a wide array of places. Uh-huh. Um, you can find it on Netflix. You can find it on Hulu. Uh, you can probably also find it on Yahoo View, which is basically like the free version of Hulu. Uh, Tubi TV. I thought it was Tubby TV. Uh, I kind of read it as to me but in any case um it's also available on dvd and blu-ray which from what i understand the uh the blu-ray is like an upscale but it looks a lot better than what viz originally put out on dvd because you know standards have changed a lot in dvd encoding mm-hmm. if you would like to check more stuff out from us you can find us at um well you you probably have like a link down below but in case you don't it um youtube.com slash dub talk podcast uh we also have a twitter feed of the same name and i believe our our tumblr has the same name too yes we're start which we're starting to work on content for so by the time this episode comes out we'll probably have something there mm-hmm. and um well if you guys have somewhere to plug yourself um jet why don't we start with you okay uh very quickly you can find me on twitter at divine where i will usually be reading about anime or cartoons or some nonsense like that uh you can also occasionally um 
read some stuff on my blog, Animation Infinity, where I'll occasionally write about stuff. And I also occasionally write for the Phantom Post this season. I'm reviewing My Hero Academia Season 3. On Twitter, you may follow me at Uncle Azrael. U-N-C-L-E-A-S-R-I-E-L. That's all for now, folks. Nice. Noah? And I also have a Twitter account, as all the cool kids do, which is at NoahClue. And that is the place where, if I'm not talking about the latest in global animation or ranting about voice actors not getting enough recognition, I am usually posting pictures of my children because I, you know, if you go through the process of having kids, one of the best things about it is you get to post pictures of them on your social media pages. And also, I have a YouTube channel, which is Journey Traveler. Um, been uh, trying to do some stuff with that. Haven't posted anything to it at the moment, but if I do, and you're watching this in the far future where I finally have passed the million subs mark, then you know that I use that to cover animation of all across the world. I also cover voice actor careers and other miscellaneous things that would be awesome to do if I had the free time to actually produce any of it. And um, you can find me on the twitter.com at Roots of Justice, where I mainly just like retweet cute animal pics. Like, I'm, I'm really big on the, as of recording, I'm, I'm really big on that Homer Simpson meme with the chair. <laughs> <laughs> like, th those are great. Um, I, 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 did also... not, I did not hit her. It's not true. I did not hit her. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I also have a YouTube page and a blog that I really, I, I keep talking about it as, something i need to do something with and eventually i will Root, roots buddy we must make a pack with each other that by the end of this month we will start regularly posting to our respective social media pages just sign your name the in this pack. book guys it's a deal sign your name on the contract the it's in my notebook that's the wrong that, that's the wrong show there was no contracts in this one it's just you pick up the death note and you can neither go to heaven nor hell yeah, you man. join us on the social some, media. Uh, but in any case, um, that's a wrap for us. Yeah. So from from the Dub Talk podcast, we would like to wish you all a, a good morning, evening, whenever you're listening to this. And um, Otakawanda Daba. And remember. Yep. And just know, if you got to the end of the episode, everything went just according to Keikaku. Ah! <laughs> Hashtag Keikaku plan. Aloha! Now you see, Canada happens to be America's hat. Back in the zone, back in the zone. Highway to the Mesa zone. <laughs> Mesa Zone! <laughs> Baby, highway to the Mesa Zone. <laughs>